So 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a couple, uh, humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good, good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for, a hope, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience swayed in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, the family unit, or what uh, anthropologists refer to as kin or kinship, is kind of the glue that holds society together. And uh, family or kin re kinship relations can be brought together by a number of different factors. Uh, the first thing is there can be biological kin. And uh, biological kin is when uh, there's blood relationships, when a child is related to uh, their parents or, you know, grandparents or whatnot. So there's blood relationships, but there's also what anthropologists call affinal relationships, and those are relationships that are uh, arranged primarily by marriage. So I'm, I'm related to my wife and my wife's family by marriage, even though we don't share any of the same DNA. But also, family and kinship is more than that. It's more than marriage bonds. It's more than biology. For example, uh, you might have some distant relatives who maybe you never see very often. Maybe they live on the other side of the country. Um, and they're in name, they're family, but you don't really have much of a relationship with them. And on the other hand, you might have a friend who you're not really related to, but maybe they've been there through the important milestones in your life. They're always at the birthday parties. They're, you know, maybe we're at your wedding and whatnot. And so they're at those milestones in your life. And in a sense, you'd call them more of a family than friend. In addition, you might have a couple who adopts a child and the child doesn't have any of their DNA. There's no blood relationship, but they become a part of that family. And the idea of a family or kinship structure is that uh, each family member would kind of provide benefits to the others, that there's benefits of being part of a family. But there's also obligations involved in being part of a family. And those obligations are kind of in a hierarchy depending on how close we are in that relationship. For example, let's say uh, my wife called me and I was at work and uh, she's like, I don't mean to bother you, but I really need $100 and I really need a ride as soon as possible. 
Now, if she called me and said that, I would do everything that I could to get there as soon as possible. But imagine if it was a little bit more distant relative that called. Maybe it was an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, just a little bit more distant. And someone, call, someone called you and said that, say, I need $100. I need a ride as soon as possible. Well, you might say, well, I, I'd be happy to help you, but I'm at work right now. As soon as I hit my lunch break, as soon as my shift is over, I'll, I'll be there. But imagine that a stranger calls you and says the same thing. You don't recognize the number, you answer the phone. I need a hundred bucks. I need, I need a ride as soon as possible. When can you get here? You're like, who, who is this? Do I know you? And you'd probably say, well, you have the wrong number, or you'd politely say that you weren't able to help. Depending on how close you are in a relationship, that changes the obligations that you uh, kind of owe or that you would be willing to do for that family member. In general, we'd be more willing to do things for our immediate family than our extended family. And in general, we'd be more willing to do things for our extended family than we would for a stranger. That's just kind of the hierarchy of how family relationships work. And what's interesting is in this passage today, Peter uses a couple of terms to describe God's people. And a couple of the terms that he uses are words that traditionally are used in the family structure. They're usually used to describe the bonds of family or the bonds of kinship or the obligations that are to hold family members together. Now the church, God's people, is a family. Families are formed in a number of ways. One is by common origin. As believers in Jesus, we have a common origin in Christ, that those who believe in Jesus and entrusted their lives to Christ by faith, they have the same Father, born again of the Spirit. And so we have that same heritage, so to speak. But we also engage in similar activities. We have a similar outlook on life. We meet together. We fellowship. We eat together. We read the Word together. We're bound together by God's Word, and we, we all see the God's Word as something that should form us and that should change us. So as God's people, we're a family. And Peter uses words to describe the family relationship in relationship to the church. What does it mean that the church is a family? What does a family look like? And the famous anthropologist describes a family or relatives this way. Marshall Salins writes this, Kinfolk or relatives are persons who are parts of one another to the extent that what happens to one is felt by the other are part of one another to the extent that what happens to one is felt by the other. Elsewhere, he writes, relatives live each other's lives and die each other's deaths. The family of God is constructed to be a family. It's to be uh, a family that is together and that when one person is struggling, when one person feels something, it's felt throughout the community. Now, this would have been at least startling to the people that Peter was writing to in the surrounding culture. Because the family structure, the household, as we've looked at before the household codes, the family structure was integral to what it meant to have an uh, orderly society. It was thought to be the bedrock of society. And now Peter is applying the language of family to the church. And that's probably why there were many false charges that were brought against Christians. 
Many thought that they were involved in an incestuous relationship because they called each other brother and sister. This was startling that they would call strangers, people from all different walks of life, and use the language of family to describe those relationships. So we see first that God's people are called to be a unified family. And we see that Peter gives kind of instructions or commands for how God's family is to operate. He says first that God's family is to have a unity of mind. That doesn't mean that God's people never disagree or never have conflicts. That's not what it's talking about. But all of us who have been born again, who are believers, have the same father. We have the same outlook on life. We believe in God's word. We're one-minded in that sense. One Greek dictionary that describes the word for unity of mind this way. It's of one mind, like-minded, or united with others in the way that one thinks. And so we're united together in a unity of mind. We believe that Jesus is the only one that can save us, that Jesus is the only one that can satisfy us. And we're united around God's word as our guide for living and guide for life. So he says have unity of mind. Then he says have sympathy. Sympathy refers to understanding each other's weaknesses, understanding each other's differences and appreciating those differences. We're to see life from other people's viewpoints, not just our own. He says that we should have brotherly love towards one another. This is a Greek word, Philadelphia, which you know we get the, the city Philadelphia from, which means the city of brotherly love. And in the ancient world, in the ancient Greek world, when this word was used, it was used for basically one purpose, just like it sounds. It was the love between siblings. It wasn't used between the love between strangers. It wasn't used in the metaphorical sense. It was literally the love between siblings. And so it's remarkable that Peter would use this word to describe the relationships in the body of Christ, that we're to have a love for one another in the church just like siblings have for one another. Then he speaks of compassion, having tender hearts towards one another, that we're to have a concern for each other's struggles and for each other's misfortunes and seek to love others through those struggles and misfortunes. Then he finally says that we're to have a humble mind, that we're to be humble. Now, humility in our day and age is something that's kind of praised. You know, we, we don't like people who are arrogant, who are smug. But in that day and, day and age, in Peter's culture, to be called humble was not a good thing. Being humble was thought of being as weak. You weren't able to defend your own honor. You weren't able to speak up for yourself. But Peter is calling the church to humility. He's calling us to lay down our rights for one another, to lay down our desire to defend our honor, defend our name, and instead choose to follow Christ. So these are the characteristics of what Peter says should be uh, evident in the body of Christ, that we should have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now these things deal primarily how we treat one another in the body of Christ. But then he's going to move on and talk about how we should treat those outside of the body of Christ. And he tells us that for those outside the body of Christ, we're, going, we're to be a force of blessing in their life. That God's people are called to be a unified people that blesses others. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. 
So Peter calls the church not to be given to violence, not to be perpetuating cycles of retaliation, but instead to bless those around them. Similar to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, he says, but I say to you, say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. As believers, we're to seek the well-being of those who wish to harm us. We're to pray for those who hate us. This is probably one of the most difficult things that Christ ever calls us to do, to pray and to bless those who seek to harm us. It's not something that's easy at all. And Peter goes on and he says that you should set apart Christ as Lord. That believers are not to fear men, but to fear God. That He is the one that we're to fear above anybody else. We're to set Him apart as being the Lord. And he says that you should be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. He says be prepared. After you bless others, after you choose not to retaliate, be prepared to give an answer. Now this passage has been used to defend the... Uh, argument that we should um, know a lot about our faith, that we should study our faith, and that's, that's true. But I think what Peter is trying to communicate here is be ready to share why you're doing what you're doing. Be sh- ready to share why Jesus means everything to you. Because throughout the history of the church, there's been kind of two extremes. Some people throughout the history of church have been kind of focused on proclamation. Just we got to just tell people the gospel. We just got to share it. We just got to get the message out. We just got to share God's word with other people. Just get the message out. But the problem is sometimes their lives don't line up with the message. They preach the gospel with their mouths, but their lives don't preach the gospel. But on the other hand, we have other people who are given to proclaiming the gospel with their lives, living out the gospel. And they're like, well, We don't need to say anything. Their motto is preach the gospel if necessary, use words. And they're like, we just have to live out the gospel. We just have to be nice people. We just have to be moral people. We just have to not retaliate. And then the gospel message is in the end never shared. In this context, the context of persecution, the one group would be saying, Don't you know, saying to their persecutors, don't you know that you need Jesus? Don't you know that you're going to hell? Don't you know that you need to repent? The other group is saying nothing. They're just bearing up under the weight of persecution. They're just trying to be nice people to others. And if if anybody asks them, they're just like, well, doing it for Jesus, doing it for Jesus, and they're silent. But Jesus calls us both to live out the gospel, and to proclaim the gospel. He calls us, Peter calls us in this passage to bless those who persecute us, but also to be re- ready. After we bless those who persecute us, people are going to start to ask questions. Why are you behaving the way that you're behaving? Why are you not retaliating? Why are you not responding like everybody else would? And when they see that, we need to be ready to say, this is why I'm doing this. I'm doing it because Christ has changed me. I'm doing this because I've been made new by Christ and Christ has endured suffering for me. So we need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's inside of us. None of these things are easy to do. It's not easy to not retaliate. It's not easy to pray 
for the people that have harmed us so badly. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And he gives us the strength to do that. And the first way he gives us the strength to do that is through the Holy Spirit. But we also have strength when we see that Jesus did the same thing for us. Peter says in verse 15, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered under injustice. He bore the weight of shame for us. And because of that, we can bear the weight of shame for others. He suffered for us, and so we can suffer for him. But there's another reason why Peter gives that we can do these things, why we can bless others, why we can live holy lives. He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So that you might obtain a blessing. We see it again in verse 14. But even if you suffer for unrighteousness, you are blessed. We see it in this paraphrase that Peter gives of Psalm 34. In verses 10 and 11. That indicates that following God and his ways always leads to blessing. So the bottom line is that we follow Jesus because we believe that when we follow him, we'll find blessing. We believe that in him is the fullness of life, that in his courts, that one day in his courts is better than thousands elsewhere. And so when we follow Jesus on the road of suffering and self-denial, we find a life of blessing. First Paul says in Romans 10, quoting Isaiah, everyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, will not be put to shame. Now scholars have debated whether this is talking about material things, whether this is talking about the earthly life, or whether it's talking about eternal life. And honestly, when I look at this, I kind of see like it's both mixed together. And I don't think the point is to look at this and say, well, is he talking about having a good life in this life or talking about eternal life? I think the point that he's trying to communicate in is that following Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. Sometimes you'll have blessing in this life. Sometimes you won't have blessing in this life. Sometimes you will suffer persecution. But he says, even when you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Even when you experience hardship, you'll have the blessing of knowing the God of the universe. Knowing that God has a plan for you. Knowing that God is coming back. And as we do that, as we follow him on the road of suffering, we find peace in him. We find blessing in God rather than, rather than holding on to bitterness, perpetrating violence. We also know that God is the ultimate judge who will one day vindicate his people. Now, as we read this passage, some of you might have been wondering about these uh, verses 18 and following, which talks about Jesus preaching to the spirits that were in, that were in prison. Now, this is a difficult text to understand, and uh, scholars have kind of taken it different ways. Some have said it's one of the most difficult passages on, of Scripture. So I can't tell you for sure that my interpretation is correct. You'll have to study that on your own, but I'll do my best with it. Now these spirits who are in prison are described as those who did not obey during the time of Noah. Now remember the story of Noah. The scriptures say in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man, that he was blameless in his generation, and it indicates that Noah walked with God. But apart from Noah, 
No one else walked with God. Apart from Noah, people were given to violence. They were given to wickedness continually. It, it says in the book of Genesis that every, every intention of the heart of man was wicked continually. And so he lived in an incredibly wicked culture, and so God determines that he's going to destroy the whole earth by means of a flood, and the only one that he's going to save is Noah. And so he commands Noah to build an ark. And we don't know exactly how long it took Noah to construct this ark. Uh, it could have taken him up to 120 years. We don't know exactly how long. But it took him a long time. Now Noah is a righteous man. Everyone else is wicked, given to violence. And he's building this ark and saying, God told me to build this ark. There's no water around. It's not raining. And he's just in the middle of a field building an ark. You can only imagine the persecution that he would have been feeling. You can only imagine the scorn that he would be feeling as day after day, nail after nail, people came out and jeered at him. You're building an ark in the midst of a field. We've never had a flood before, and you think all of a sudden there's going to be this great flood and destroy the whole earth. It was a great act of faith on the part of Noah. Yet soon Noah's faith was proven to be correct. Soon the flood did come. And Noah's faith was vindicated. And everyone else was destroyed. Now that leads us to the spirits who are in prison. These spirits who are in prison, I believe, are the souls of the wicked people who were evil in the sight of the Lord, who rejected God's uh, grace, rejected God's mercy, who chose to follow their own course of violence, who persecuted Noah in the days of the flood. And so it says in the text that Jesus goes and he preaches to them. Now why does he preach to them? I believe it's a message of judgment. I believe that when he goes to them, he says, you could have had faith like Noah. You could have joined him on the boat, and yet you were committed to your wickedness. And so he preaches to them a message of judgment that Noah was vindicated, his faith was rewarded, but they were condemned. Peter says that for believers, baptism corresponds with this. Waters in the ancient world were often associated with judgment. But when a person becomes a believer in Jesus, he or she enters into the ark, which is Christ, and through Christ we can face the waters of judgment and not be, not be harmed. Just like Noah was building in the ark and entering into the ark and people were persecuting him, believers enter into the ark, enter into a relationship with Christ, and sometimes they experience persecution and trials in this life. But in the end, we know that believers' faith will be rewarded. That even when we don't see it now, even when it looks like the evildoers are winning, we know that one day our faith will be rewarded when Christ comes back again in judgment. And we, because we have believed in him, because we're in the ark, so to speak, will be saved from the waters of judgment. So God's people are called to be a unified family that blesses others. And in turn, as we do that, we find that the life of following Christ is a life of blessing. We find blessing in following after Jesus. As we walk through this life, we'll face persecution and trials. 
Jesus assured us of that. But we can look at the example of Jesus. We can look of the, at the hope that following Jesus is worth it. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do what God has called us to do. In his book, uh, in Hid- Hidden in Plain Sight, author and pastor Mark Buchanan uh, interviews and talks with uh, this couple. The lady's name was Regine, and she came to Christ in Rwanda by reading her Bible as a genocide was happening, happening and ravaging her country. She fled to Canada and met her husband, Gordon. They decided to return to Rwanda to show the love of Christ to people who had once been their enemies. And Regine shared a story about a particular woman who had a, a great encounter with her enemy. This woman's only son was killed, and she was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness. She prayed continually, God, show me my killer. She longed for the day when she could exact vengeance on the person that took away her son. One night she had a dream. And in the dream, she was going to heaven. But there was a complication. In order to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. She had to walk down the street, enter through the door, go through its rooms, up the stairs, and exit through the back doors. She said to God, whose house is this? God told her, it's the house of your son's killer. Shortly after that, she woke up. But two days later, she got a knock at at her door. She opened the door, and there stood a young man about her son's age. Yes, she said. He hesitated, and he said, I'm the one who killed your son. Since that day, I've had no life, no peace. So here I am. I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me. I'm dead already. Throw me in jail. I'm in prison already. Torture me. I'm in torment already. Do with me as you you wish. Finally, the woman's prayer had been answered. She knew the person who had killed her son. Now she could finally exact vengeance upon him. Now she, she, she could do what she had longed to do. But now, to her surprise, surprise even to herself, she didn't want to kill him. She didn't want to throw him in jail. She didn't want to torture him. In that moment, she only wanted one thing. She wanted a son again. So she said to him, I ask this of you. Come into my home and live with me. Eat the food I would have prepared for my son. Wear the clothes I would have made for my son. Become the, the son that I lost. And so he did. That's the kind of blessing that God is calling his people to. I'd like to close by reading a quote by the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, who spoke of a renowned Christian, reader, or Christian leader who is known for his faith in Christ. And I think this quote embodies what we're called to as a church. This quote embodies what we are to be as a people, as individuals, and as God's family. He says this, To do him a hurt was to beget a kindness from him. His heart was made of such fine soil that if you planted it in the seeds of hate, they blossomed love.
that's what God's people are called to. God's people are called to be a unified family that blesses others and in turn finds blessing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that while you would have had every right to punish us, to retaliate, you chose instead to come to the earth to die for sinners who hated you, to bless us. And we're thankful for that, Lord. And we pray that as we live our lives and we experience those who persecute us, who treat us poorly, God, I pray that we would have the strength through your Holy Spirit to show blessing to them, show grace to them, even when it's difficult. Lord, give us the faith to believe that the road of suffering, the road of self-denial is a road that ultimately leads to blessing. First and foremost, the blessing of knowing you and having a relationship with you. God, we just pray that you'd just give us the strength to do that today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.